We will return to 1 Corinthians in a couple of weeks. Next week is the Lord's Supper, and I do not want to deal with 1 Corinthians 14 on that particular Sunday. We will be looking at a different text, and even though I have worked ahead on 1 Corinthians, I have been at General Assembly all week, and we are turning to a passage that I dearly love, and it speaks to my heart, and I believe will to yours as well. And so, let us open our copies of God's Word to the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and we will begin reading at verse 19. Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 19. But first, let us go before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God and Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are called to gather together and to worship Thy name and to encourage one another while it is still day, looking for that day of the return of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, when it truly will be day. All will be light and darkness will be dispelled. But until then, Father, help us to understand that we are pilgrims on the way and to live under the authority of the written Word of God. Help us, Father, also as we gather week after week when we become confused and jumbled up inside over so many things to hear clearly Christ Himself speak His Word to our hearts through the powerful working of the Spirit of God. And, Lord, if there are those here today who are lost and undone and do not know Jesus Christ, we pray that for the first time they will draw nigh through the blood of Christ because the Spirit of God enables, saves, regenerates, and converts. And these things we ask in the name of the high priest, the only high priest, the only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin reading at verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. This is the Word of God. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, people of God, you will notice that in verse 19, the writer begins with, therefore, brothers, and he is pointing back to all that he has said about the work of Jesus Christ. He has been showing the insufficiency of the old economy, the old sacrificial system, which was never intended to be permanent, but to point ahead typologically to Jesus Christ and to his final work for us on the cross. 
And so the insistence on the finished work of Christ for his people, as we read in many places in the ninth chapter and also earlier in chapter 10, undergirds what he says here about our bold access to God. How we should delight to contemplate Christ's once for all finished sacrifice for our sin. That judicially no debt remains for us to pay. There is no guilt to condemn us any longer at the judgment who have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in view of what Christ has done, he tells us that we have access to the Father, and he brings this very pointed truth to our hearts through three exhortations. The first exhortation is draw near draw near. And so reading again those opening verses, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's the first exhortation, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He speaks here of confidence. Not first of all, meaning our subjective state, but as in Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He underscores not first of all the subjective, but the objective. This is not first of all, in other words, about how I feel about confidence coming into the presence of God. It is freedom of access that is given with the blood of Jesus, that is grounded completely in his merit and righteousness, completely in his priestly work, apart from works that we do, but completely based upon the work that he has done. Now, how I feel about approaching God should be a response to this, but when I do not feel bold, that confidence is not removed by my fluctuating emotions. It's something purchased for you, Christian, by Jesus Christ. And so he says we have. It's objective in character. The ground of our subjective confidence is what he is stressing here. Not through our merits, but by the blood of Jesus that is on the basis of his self-sacrifice. That blood that is called in First Peter, precious blood. His blood is precious in that it propitiates and redeems and reconciles and cleanses and prevails in heaven through the intercessory work of Jesus and seals the covenant of grace and preserves us to the end. It was costly and therefore precious. So he says we have through that blood access, the blood of Jesus, the blood of the incarnate God, and the incarnation is stressed in the opening verses of chapter 10. In striking contrast to the exclusion of God's people from the holy of holies in the tabernacle and temple, Christ has entered, and in him we follow into the most holy place. The only way of peace, the only way of entrance is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you are here and you think that somehow you can have a relationship with God, a saving relationship apart from Jesus Christ, 
The Bible consistently teaches, and this text teaches, that it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that one can be redeemed and saved. And so in verses 19 and 20, he says this is through the, through the veil or through the curtain, as the ESV says. It's a new way, not through the old structure of the tabernacle, not the blood of bulls and goats, but as he says in chapter 8, verse 13, he has established a new covenant. He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So it's a new way, and it's a living way, he says in these verses, because Christ is a living Lord, because our living high priest intercedes for you now. No longer dead carcasses and bloody slain beasts, but the one for whom a human body was prepared, sacrificed himself, and rose from the dead. It is a living way. And then he says it is through the curtain or the veil of his flesh. What does he mean by that? Well, the inner veil of the tabernacle separating the holy place from the most holy place that said off limits to all but the high priest on the Day of Atonement once a year. Well, that veil, according to the Word of God, from top to bottom at the crucifixion of Jesus was torn in two indicating the finality of the sacrifice of Jesus, the finality of God's intervention to redeem His people. The way of entrance is the way that God had provided, that God had approved. Do not fear to enter, we are being told here. The way to God in heaven is now opened. His consecration on the cross is compared to the veil into the tabernacle that has now been torn away. And so the way to God is through Christ's flesh, through His sacrifice. As we read in 1 Peter 3.18, that He suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. The barrier then has been taken away and will never, never be restored. You have no barriers between you and the Father who trust in Jesus Christ. I've often thought of this, and I've often mentioned it, that I think of it as a a prince that might take me into the king's throne room. If I were to attempt it on my own, then I would be treated harshly. I would be rejected. But if the prince brings me into the home and into the palace and into the court of his father, then I may enter with boldness and confidence. Well, the path of entrance is through the Son of God, right there into the Father's presence. The path is sprinkled with atoning blood. The new and living way is the gospel way. And it's all by His priesthood. For He says in verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And to do so, He says, with a true heart. Now, drawing near is priestly language. This was the language used of the priest as he entered into the holy place to offer atonement for the sins of Israel. Israel drew near to God through the appointed priesthood. The access, we are being told, is not fenced. It is open for us. And surely, among other things, what is emphasized here is our privilege of going to God in prayer and fellowshipping with Him in prayer and bowing our hearts and our heads before Him, and fellowshipping with the triune God, communing with God. Do you know communion with God, personal communion with God? 
Our hearts, he says in verse 22, are sprinkled with Jesus' blood. Your new situation is that the blood has been applied to your conscience. You have been washed with pure water. The verses that were read to us before worship from Ezekiel 36 are undoubtedly in the backdrop here. Your life, believer, has been cleansed by Jesus' blood. And so listen, if you know who God is, how could you dream of coming any other way? He is absolutely, completely, and utterly holy and transcendent. How can I be sure of acceptance, you might ask? Well, the only way that you can be accepted is by trusting Christ who bore the sinner's guilt and sin and by faith to know that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we dare not approach. Your past, though, believer, is signed by Jesus' blood. You enter into the very gates of heaven through Christ your high priest. Now apply this to your inner moods and feelings that might keep you from communing with God in prayer, communing with Him at His throne of grace. Preach this gospel to your soul. Of course I'm a sinner, you might say to yourself, but in Christ I am righteous. Therefore I come reverently, but I come boldly into His presence. And we can sing that hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds, and these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. All of that dealt with through the blood of Jesus. You know, we're told in James 4, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. And you now may do that, believer, through Jesus' blood. So go in boldness in Christ and God will meet you. My prayers offered from a fallen though redeemed heart are frail and weak and in themselves inadequate, but place your prayers in the hands of your mediator, your high priest, Jesus Christ, and your prayers will hardly be recognizable because they are presented with perfection to the Father. So let us apply the text that speaks of confidence, the ground of our confidence to our hearts, this drawing near to God that we are commanded to do, exhorted to do in this text. Often your soul says, there's so much sin. How can I draw near to God? The spirit of legalism then begins to grip your heart. How can I pray to the infinitely holy God? How can I fellowship with Him? My thoughts have been evil and they have plagued me. My heart has been cold and not warm toward God. I cannot enter into the presence of the living God, you may say to yourself. And every Christian has experienced this. But now listen, Jesus has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once for all. And verse 19 tells us to come with confidence. That word, parousia, that word is translated in the old authorized version, boldness. Come with confidence, come with 
boldness, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And so you may now go into God's presence and pray and take your needs and confess your sins and commune with the triune God completely on the basis of atonement, satisfaction of divine justice, the blood of Jesus that removes our guilt. And so we live every moment in that reality. Christ has atoned for the sins of his people. Have you been fearful to come? Has your heart been overwhelmed by your personal sin and your own total inadequacy? Well, come. There you will find a father who loves you. Come. There you find a father who will receive you. And so listen, if the atonement of Jesus is sufficient to God that you come, then it should be sufficient for you to come. Boldness tells us that we now have a right given to us by God, a liberty and a freedom to come into the presence of God. So think of your privilege. In ancient Israel, only the high priest could enter the holiest once per year. And now in Christ, through his work, you can enter into the court of heaven itself there upon your knees in your closet or joining the people of God in worship here this morning or as we pray together before him. And then it tells us that you are to come in full assurance of faith. I think that's remarkable. Not by confidence in yourself will you have full assurance of faith, but complete confidence in Christ. You who struggle with assurance, do you think that the blood of Christ is insufficient to save you? Do you think that you are somehow a special case? Is your heart sprinkled by the blood of Christ? How can faith fail to be full and lively if its focus is upon your great high priest? And so be assured, fully assured, that your petitions that go up to your great high priest will be heard, will be answered, and that you are accepted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the first exhortation. Remarkable and wonderful, isn't it? Will you act upon it? Will you go into the presence of the living God? Will you, even this day, spend time with Him with joy in your heart that you, yes, personally a sinner in Christ, are completely righteous and fully accepted? Well, we have another exhortation, and that exhortation is to hold fast. It's there in verse 23. We have first in 22, let us draw near. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. By the way, in verse 22, we have faith in verse 23, hope in verse 24, love, that great triad. And in the context of those graces that he gives us, we are told to hold fast in hope. Calvin says beautifully, just as hope is the child of faith, so it is fed and sustained by faith to the end. Moreover, he demands confession because there is no true faith that does not show itself to men. So based on the faithfulness of God to his promises, verse 23 tells us to hold fast the confession. He holds on to you and you hold on to all the beauty and wonder of the truth of the gospel, and you confess it before a watching world. And you do so because he's a promise-keeping God. Look at the text again. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised, that's his hold on you, you see, he who promised is faithful. Let me read you a quote from John Gill, 18th century Calvinist divine, who wrote on the promises of God so beautifully in his body of divinity. And this is one of my favorite things from Gill. He says, God is eminently and and emphatically the promiser. The promises of God are exceeding great and precious, very ancient, free, unconditional, irrevocable, and immutable, and are admirably suited to the cases of his people and will be fulfilled every one of them. They include in them things temporal, spiritual, and eternal, things temporal, as that people shall not want, that their affliction shall work for good, and that he will support them under all their troubles, things spiritual, as that he will be their God, which takes in his everlasting love to them and his protection of them, and that all grace shall be wrought in them and every blessing of grace bestowed on them, things eternal. As everlasting glory and happiness, the promise of eternal life was in God's heart made in the covenant and put into Christ's hands before the world began and is declared in the gospel. Now God is faithful to all of his promises. Nor can he fail or deceive. He is all wise and foreknowing of everything that comes to pass. He never changes his mind nor forgets his word. And he is able to perform and he and is the God of truth and cannot lie. Nor has he ever failed in any one of his promises. Nor will he suffer his faithfulness to fail. And this is a strong argument to hold fast the profession of faith. Isn't it? <laughs> that God keeps his word to you, though you fail. But he is saying, nonetheless, in the hope that he has given you and in the fulfillment of his covenantal word and promises to you, you also now find the strength to continue to confess, to profess the faith that has been granted to you by sovereignty in this fallen world. Well, that's the second encouragement, exhortation, hold fast. But then there's another exhortation, and it's found here in verse 24. Let's read verses 24 and 25 again. And let us consider, that's the next, you see, let us consider, that's the next exhortation, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he says, consider. You might remember in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, consider Jesus. But here, it's consider one another. Will we not encourage hope when we encourage one another? We are called to Christian fellowship. We are to arouse that latent spiritual hope that sometimes is just a weak ember in the heart of the believer. And so, do you think this way? What often happens is when we find ourselves slipping, we get off by ourselves and we begin to miss worship and we begin to miss the fellowship of the saints and things go poorly for us until the recognition comes, I need to be in worship. I need to hear the Word of God. I need the fellowship of the saints. I need Christian friends to encourage me. So we are to arouse these latent spiritual hopes together. 
We should consider one another in our needs, consider one another in our frailties, consider one another in our weaknesses, that some of us are strong in one thing, some of us are strong in another, that we all have graces, we all have Christ that trust in Him, yet different ways in which we suffer, and we have different infirmities, and differing declines, and differing sins, and differing failures and differing needs. So the word here is, all right, that being the case, I'm exhorting you through the priestly work of Christ, through the exhortation to hold fast your profession, I'm now exhorting you to provoke one another unto brotherly love and good works. And again, not for justification, you already are justified, but as a fruit of the grace of God to glorify God, adorn the gospel, and as an evidence of faith before the world. So it's in that context that he says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. The exhortation is to be faithful in your local Christian worship. Romans 15, 7, wherefore receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, who knows? Perhaps they feared authorities that did not wish them to meet because of their persecution. We know that Hebrews tells us these were, these were Christians who were, were Hebrew Christians who were persecuted and who who sometimes thought of going back to their old ways. And so they needed to be together in public worship. Or the persecution made it difficult for them to meet, and they were tempted to give it up. Or maybe someone said, I'm saved, why do I need others? Or perhaps some are weary or lazy or allow their hearts to harbor coldness or bitterness or unreasonable expectations. Or who knows what the reasons might have been but what might the reasons be for us? F.F. Bruce made the comment, to withdraw from the society of their fellow believers was to court spiritual defeat. Only by remaining united could they preserve their faith and witness. And that's true. We are called to love the church of Christ purchased with Christ's own blood and not to grow slack as we meet together and worship His name. So there's a warning here, you see. It is possible for us to develop bad habits like these, and hence the warning, because hard times will again also come to the church. They are there in other parts of the world, and we will have other lockdowns and perhaps government lockdowns. Perhaps there may be on the horizon the the, uh, the theme, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Who knows what we are to expect, but this is the thing. We are to worship together while we may. If we are forbidden, then we'll look for ways to gather for worship because God tells us to. And what we have here in this passage is the encouragement to join together in worship. So encourage, the word means to urge on. It can mean exhort or comfort or strengthen So just look around you, spiritually speaking, to those who are uh, around you in this church. For as someone has written, one is genuinely involved in assisting others, one who is genuinely involved in assisting others 
usually has little time to indulge his fears or nurse resentments, which might cause him to forsake the fellowship of the saints. In other words, serving others shows that you are free in Christ and gets us out of this focus upon self. So he says, do so all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does he mean by that? Well, you know what he means by that. He means the day of judgment. He means the return of Jesus Christ. All the more as we are in the last days and the darkness seems to grow. All the more hear the exhortation to gather together and study the scriptures and hear the word and worship his name and pray together and sing his praises all the more as you see the day drawing near. Calvin said, we should continually expect his second revelation and think of each day as though it were the last. Oh, that we could live like that, that we did live that way. In another place, he says, if the end seems a long way off, let us grasp the cure and wake up to what ails us, for it is clear that we are devoid of faith if our souls cannot rise together to the vision of Christ's coming. So do not let the knowledge that you live in the end time weaken your commitment to public worship and public gathering and prayer together and studying of the scriptures together. Where this is our absorbing consideration, the coming of Christ, then we walk differently. We walk more faithfully. We walk more carefully and lovingly and longingly and helpfully one to another. Now, just let me remind you of a few texts that underscore this, just a few that we find in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Second Peter chapter 2, the entire context speaks of the return of Christ. And in verse 14, after speaking of the end of the world and the coming judgment, he says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. In other words, let the truth of the coming of Christ affect your Christian living. In 1 Thessalonians 4, therefore the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the air forever to be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Our comfort is found in this truth. Romans 13, 10 and following, knowing the time, that is, that it is high time to awake out of sleep. Somebody asleep here this morning? You're slumbering when you should be awake? Knowing the time, it's high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Here in this book in Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto him that look for him, he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 10.25, 
not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. So, all of those scripture verses, constant theme in the New Testament, is that as you focus on the return of Christ, it should influence how you and I live. It's part of our daily living as Christians. Or is it? Is it a part of your daily life? Is there ever a day that goes by that you do not think of the return of Jesus, the day of judgment, the resurrection of the dead, heaven's glories? I suspect there are those days. What is the habit? What is the trajectory of your life in regard to these things? Is there room here for us to hear this exhortation here in this passage in Hebrews chapter 10? F.F. Bruce again wonderfully says, the period between the first advent of Christ and his parousia, the coming of the Lord, is the end time, the last days, the last hour. Whatever the duration of the period may be for faith, the time is at hand. Revelation 1.3. Each successive generation, Christian generation, is called upon to live as the generation of the end time if it is to live as a Christian generation. This being so, the question is, how can the tension between the eschatological and historical existence of faith be retained over a period of time? The most satisfactory answer is the Pauline answer, which, while given in the first Christian generation, is equally applicable to every Christian generation. If we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit, let us also walk, Galatians 5.25. For the Spirit is the pledge and the firstfruits of the heritage of the glory to be entered by believers at the return of Christ. In keeping with this answer, our author insists that since Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to offer himself to God as the perfect sacrifice for his people's sin, those who acknowledge him as apostle and high priest have already experienced the powers of the age to come and receive the kingdom which cannot be shaken. Thus they anticipate, here and now, the consummation for which they hope, let them hold this hope fast by unswerving loyalty to Christ. I think that one of the primary ways in which the Lord has given to us in His Word that we grow in grace, that we mature, that we hold fast our profession, that we overcome temptation and sin is one of the most neglected, and that is to be eschatologically minded, to look ahead every day to the return of Jesus Christ. Let me commend to you that every morning you first of all contrast yourselves with the majesty of God, put yourself in your place, so to speak, and then knowing that he has redeemed and saved you, and loves you, remember, He's coming again for you. And I will guarantee that if that is heartfelt, wrought deeply within your soul, 
it will make a huge difference in how you begin to live as a Christian. And so, people of God, there were three wonderful exhortations that we find in this passage. 19 to 22, we are told to draw near, and so let us draw near. In verse 23, to hold fast, and in verse 24, to consider one another, and to do so with the return of Christ in your eye. And so, people of God, live in joyful expectation of Christ's glorious coming again, contemplating the high priestly work of Christ that fills us with the expectancy of His return. He rose from the dead. He ascended on high. He will sit at the right hand until He makes all of His enemies a footstool for His feet. He has gone to prepare a place for us. He will come again to receive us unto Himself, that where He is there we shall be also. His exaltation to heaven as our great high priest looks ahead to His exaltation when He comes and puts an end to this sinful world and delivers His people forever. Amen.